0: Well, good afternoon, I can officially say now good afternoon, um, and we'll go ahead and get, get started, uh, and dive into the Corinthians, if <laughs> we could, but let's open with prayer if we could please. God, once again we gather here to dive into your word for us today as we begin our journey into the letters of the New Testament. Um, may the stories that they have for us come to life in the midst of what sometimes just seems like correspondences. Through this correspondence and these correspondences, may we see the largest story that you are seeking to tell us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. amen. All right. So, hey, Louise. Hi. Louise, come on in. So, 1st and 2nd Corinthians today, um, our first foray into the letters of Paul. Uh, so, just to sort of recap, last week we talked about um, what you know, what scholars believe were truly written by Paul and what are, probably weren't. 1st and 2nd Corinthians falls into the truly written by Paul category. Uh, we talked about some of the reasons for that. Um, so... <clears throat> One of the things that I think is super, super important to know when you are reading these letters is to know about the town that it's written to or a geographic area that it's written to and the church community that is being written to. Um, so if you notice that whenever I'm preaching on a letter, I will usually work into the sermon a paragraph to just talk about what's, what's happening in this community, what the town is like, um, why, why the letter was written. Um, because I think it's really, really important to ground it in context so that you understand the things that are being said are being said for a reason. It's not that just Paul sort of thought these things up just because he was bored. All right. He's writing to these communities in particular most of which he has, he has an ongoing relationship, most of which he has actually been to in person. And so these are correspondences where he is following up on things. So, with that as our backdrop, let's do a little bit of a deep dive into the city of Corinth. Um, it is located at the bottom of Greece, uh, a little lower, about 40 miles below of Athens, okay? Um, It was on the the water, so it's a port city. It was extremely wealthy, very cosmopolitan population. So again, when you're thinking about a church, a Gentile church, of course, that is in a wealthy community that sees a lot of uh, a variety of people from all over the, the, the world, the known world at the time, if you will. I mean, that's what happens in these port cities. And, and, and so that's important for us to remember as we're thinking about this church that he's writing to. So it was a thriving city uh, commercially, it was thriving culturally. Um, Cicero called it the light of all Greece, high praise uh, from the Greek writer. And uh, so it's a good place. It was a manufacturing center, a lot of bronze and terracotta uh, that you see in that part of the world came from Corinth. Uh, so that's that's kind of kind of what 's a little bit about uh, uh, Corinth. continue on. Um, because I would figure in large part because of its cosmopolitan sensibility, it had a reputation for uh, for a lot of the Greek religion and gods, and in particular uh, the goddess Aphrodite. And I, love, I just love the word licentiousness. It had a had a reputa- reputation for licentiousness. It was known as the city of love and not brotherly love like Philadelphia. Um, Paul had a really interesting viewpoint of this city. He saw a lot of problems with it, some of which we've mentioned, or this particular one at least, but also saw tremendous potential. And, and Paul was great, and we'll, we, we saw this, I guess, in, in, in the Acts thing when he was in Athens and was standing there among these idols. And a lot of people, I mean, I think about how a lot of faithful today would see themselves and go, Oh my gosh, this is hopeless. Get me out of here. And Paul was like, Wait a minute. There's this one idol that says to an unknown God. So Paul had a great ability for seeing beyond the surface and digging in and really seeing potential where maybe others didn't. Paul saw a lot of potential in Corinth and it was because it was such a commercial center of that part of the world this port city would constantly attract newcomers and they could get involved in this in this faith community in this church and become followers of Jesus and then do what mm-hmm. go back yeah mm-hmm. right so it was like wow this is no this is great where, where a lot of people will be a little freaked out by starting the church and be a little intimidated, Paul actually saw it as a great potential. Um, Paul founded the church in Corinth for this reason, um, and he embarked on this kind of ten year correspondence that we 're going to cover in one hour, uh, actually less and the first letter was written around fifty six to fifty seven c e and so we 've lost a little bit of the time frame, but obviously, this is twenty years or so after jesus 's death and resurrection. Um, it's fairly early into Paul's tenure of, of his conversion and, and becoming the champion of the church rather than its greatest enemy. The primary concern that we find in First Corinthians, and again, Paul is often writing letters to address an issue that is afoot. And the main issue that he's dealing with in First Corinthians is divisions. There are divisions within the church. Just keep your jaw from falling down on the ground to hear that that just mere decades into the existence of this thing, they didn't even call church technically back then. That there would be divisions in the church. So um, we can. I'm. I'm available for pastoral counseling later, if that thing. <laughs> I don't know why these random letters have popped up. So, quick outline of 1 Corinthians, again, just to kind of give us a, a thing. We talked about the letter style of Paul, you know, and the format, when, and 1 Corinthians follows that fairly uh, reliably, the salutation, the intro kind of part. Then we have Thanksgiving, always got to give thanks. Um, and then following that by the main thesis or what it is that you're talking about, some of the things that he kind of goes over, church factions and Christian unity, the first three to four chapters. Criticisms and directives. So this is where Paul really digs into, hey, you need to do that better or you need to do this better. And, and again, I always, I mean, maybe because he founded the church, they would receive it a little better, but sometimes I wondered how um, joyful these people received some of Paul's words of advice. Uh, spiritual gifts. Um, that was important because spiritual gifts, or the lack thereof, were a source of division in this church. And so Paul wants to speak directly to that. Resurrection of the dead. Uh, and that's some theology kind of stuff we'll get into. The perinesis, I misspelled that. Oh, there there it is. I don't know why. That's really weird how it's do all this stuff. And then the closing. Okay, now it's all pieced together. So that's basically what we've got as far as the order of the letter. So open, if you will, to to, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1. I'm just going to read this little little bit here um, and kind of get into this just to give us a flavor of how Paul would typically open this letter. Verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. I don't know who that is. Got a shout out though. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have now the Thanksgiving. I give thanks to... God is faithful by him. You were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, the beginning words, the thanksgiving, and now we get to the meat. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. And then he kind of goes on and on and on a little bit of that. So, what do we what do we get from the very opening part of kind of the reason for writing the letter? What do we get that uh, that was happening, these divisions? So what do you what do you think? What was kind of going on? Primarily, Right. of the So it's Different camps. Different camps. I like British sermons better. Steve is better pastoral count. Right. I'm kind of that sort of that sort of thing. Or 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 people who were in not in official roles but but had claimed some or possessed some kind of influence, or whatever in the congregation, you found people that that were aligning themselves in sort of camps, right? Again, shocker that this happens in church. Um, and so Paul, Paul is there to say, and, he, and, and he's going to spend the bulk of the letter saying our, 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 your, everyone's allegiance is to Christ and what it is that binds us to Christ, and that's the thing. So we've got to get over this I belong to so-and-so kind of a thing. Corinthian church has broken into several opposing cliques, centered around different leaders who had baptized them. All right. Um, the factions were threatening the health and the future of the church. <laughs> the, or the same issues that plague the early church are still issues that plague the church today because we're people trying to be imperfect. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right. So, what Paul does, and we're, you know, we we can skip ahead a little bit um, if you want if you want to read um, to sort of. You know He, he kind of goes into this throughout, but if you skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, So let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. So he's kind of referring back to those names that he quoted at the beginning, right? Um, or the world or life or death of the present or the future all belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So let's all be clear, he's saying, about the, the, the thing that really binds us Together and that's Christ to God, and we all have that. So, so that's part of what he does here. Um, he would address the issue of diversity later, um, but, but but what he does in the early on is he wants to really emphasize the fact that we are one church. You are one community of faith, all bound by Christ, and you need to live that way. Once again, doing weird things. All right, so. Um, Five through eleven, Paul addresses this a whole lot of issues affecting the church. Um, he just and he and and Paul doesn't doesn't uh, typically does not mince words or you know kind of circle around. He would have struggled in the Southern Church. I'll just be honest with you, right? Where you have to sort of well, you know, you have to kind of get to it. He would just go straight for the jugular, as it were. So, talks in chapter five and in six about sexual sin. Um, for uh, uh, verse five one, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even found among pagans. For a man is living with his father's wife. Uh, chapter six twelve, um, we we get a reference to that as well. Um, we also find in chapter six that that they were filing lawsuits against one another. Um, they were not trying to solve differences or discrepancies or whatever amongst themselves, they were, were reaching out to sort of the, the legal field. And that's, that really aggravated Paul. He's like, you know, you really should be about solving things yourself rather than I me mean, or the church, right? Uh, the reaching out to the legal system, whatever, to solve things like that. Eating food offered to idols, which is kind of an interesting one. Skip ahead to chapter 8. Um, and we're going to talk about, we're going to come back to this in a little bit, um, about, about the rationale for why this was something that Paul, um, you know, was, was affecting things. And we find in verse 11 things about hair, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just interesting that these are the kinds of things, and again, to Judith's point, nothing's changed, that things that would Become points of contention, or whatever would be, uh, uh, were points of contentions at bay, and then, and then later on in eleven, the this sort of uh, they the, the way that they were celebrating the Lord's supper was causing a lot of, of consternation. Um, in, in that uh, verse twenty, when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's supper. For when the time comes to eat. Each of you goes ahead with your own supper and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? (laughs) Do you not have homes to eat and drink in or do you show contempt for the church of God? So, the meal was less of a true gathering of the people together and sharing in the same meal. It, it, It became a time of kind of hierarchy and sort of me getting what I need in that sort of way. So, Paul hits on all these things, six chapters, just boom, 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 and and comes at them rapid fire. And again, I kind of wonder how these people received it. But Paul wrote it anyway um, and did that. So a really important thing to understand in Paul's letters when you're reading the letters is to understand that Paul often writes in what is called a stoic cynic formula. This is, this is the thing you're going to learn that will impress your friends at your next cocktail, cocktail party. <laughs> but Paul again is writing to a Hellenistic culture, and therefore he is borrowing a Hellenistic style of arguing, not really arguing, but making a case. Okay? He is borrowing, he is borrowing their own language, their own culture to unpack what he wants to say. So the stoic Cynic formula is a Hellenistic style of arguing where a person quotes their opponent and then refutes it. So what we find a lot in 1 Corinthians is Paul quoting what the Corinthians have said, what the people in the church have said that he has overheard, Maybe we're written to him. He'll quote this thing that he disagrees with. All right? So he states their point, and then he corrects it. He refutes it. He shuts it down, shoots it down. Um, so this was Paul's way of kind of creating a conversation when he was the only one that was talking. And you're writing a letter, you can't have a dialogue. Okay? So he is forecasting, not forecasting, he is stating what they they have said, and then he responds. Without actually being there, he can do that. This is a really confusing thing to read, all right? Because um, Paul does not say, I have heard you say before this, quote marks, da-da-da-da, like that, close quotes. But what I want you to hear is, Da, 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 da. He doesn't do that. The stoic cynic formula, it was basically saying the thing and then refuting it and not really any clarifying language that that is what you're doing. All right? Um, so the way, the, a way to read it when you know it is to say, you say blah, 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 but I say blah, 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 right? Um, but again, you have to know that what you're reading is this where it can be really confusing. For instance, let's go back to that offering idols thing. All right. 8 verse 4. Verses 4 through 7 is Paul quoting what he has heard the Corinthians say. This is not Paul. This is him quoting him. And in some of your Bibles, you may have quotation marks. Maybe not. Verse 4. Hence, as to the eating of food offered by idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God the Father from whom all things, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all are things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this so that's that's the Corinthian assertion. That's that's them talking. Here's Paul responding to that at verse seven. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. Okay? So now, he's back to the Corinthians. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And then this is Paul speaking. But take care that this liberty of the earth has not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols. So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is... A cause of their falling, I will never eat meat so that I might cause one of them to fall. So do you, do you sense sort of the dialogue here? The Corinthians are saying, look, food is food. What Paul is saying is, yeah, but if eating a food that's been offered idols is going to cause some who are young in the faith to falter, it's not worth it. Get your food somewhere else kind of thing. But did you sense in the, in the way that it was kind of laid out there sort of this... Again, imaginary dialogue, but based on things that he knows they are thinking or some are thinking and then his response, right? So verse four through six is the Corinthian assertion. Seven, eight is Paul's response. Eight B, that little quick segment is another Corinthian assertion. And then nine through 13 is Paul's response. And again, if you don't know that's what you're looking at, it can be confusing. Because it's like, wait, he's contradicting himself, or he's doing it like that. So there are all these other instances in 1 Corinthians where this happens. And again, we don't know it unless we now know it. So judging leaders, 2 through 5 is one. 6 through 12 through 17 is freedoms from sin's consequences, sexual relations and marriage, speaking in tongues. And the biggie... (laughs) Women speaking in church. Matter of fact, let's take a look at that one because this um, can be very freeing. Fourteen thirty three, and I got it up here if you wanted like that. Um, actually, look 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 at your Bible because um, <coughs> chapter fourteen. Verse 33b, which is the second half of 33 through 36. As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them also ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only ones it has reached? Kind of confusing until you look at it this way. Corinthians, he is repeating their assertion. This is what he's heard them say. As in the churches of the saints, women should be kept silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. You've heard this verse before, right? Probably not quoted in a very helpful or useful way. Now, what happens next in the Greek, and you don't see it as well in this translation, but you might see it in other translations. In fact, I wonder if any of you have it, is there is this little, it looks like an N with a long second part. It's actually, it's the Greek letter E, and it would have, it, it, it would have been um, read, uh, and, and actually I have not translated here what? That's the way that would have come across. Does anybody have that in there? Yeah. What? What? Did the Word of God originate with you? Are you the only ones it's reached? So what's fascinating by this is that when you're reading it, not knowing that you're reading the Stoic Senate formula, you read this long drawn out thing and you go, that Paul Oh, God, he hates women. He just wants people, women in silent churches. When actually, this is not Paul. This or whoever in the Corinthian church that he's heard. And he is making a point of highlighting that so that he can, he can then go, what the hell? What are you talking about? Are you suggesting that the word of God originated with you? Are you the only ones that the word of God has reached? Get over yourselves already. I mean, that's essentially what it is. that's not in the Greek. Get over yourselves already. But that's the feel of this. That if you don't know this is what you're looking at, you don't know that you're doing it. So um, this changes a lot, right? First of all, it changes it, it. And I don't know that Paul was you know like gonna um, you know go marching for uh, women's rights or anything like that. But but what it what it definitely what it definitely says, if nothing else, is that this is not his. Thinking. He is bringing it up because he wants to make a point of shooting it down. But there are churches that use that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is why context and a little knowledge of the Stoic sentiment formula is a pretty I, helpful thing. I've heard it. I mean, you know, I'm older than most of you. And I yeah. heard it growing up. Yeah. No, not you. You're not older than me. I know how old you are. <laughs> but yeah, I heard it growing yeah. up. Yeah. he oh, yeah. should have. He should have had more in the second paragraph. <laughs> he should have said more. Than, um, well, and again, our English translation has not helped because, and I don't know that it would have made a whole lot of difference if in what what translation are you reading, Warren? It is. Well, that's the kind of Bible, but it it Revised op- Standard, revised standard yeah. and you've got the It's revised. not in this one. Yeah, it's one of the few times that the RSV is uh, got a leg up on the NRSV. Most of the time the NRSV, my humble opinion, is 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 above the RSV, but this is one thing that I think they missed the boat on because that eh really it, it if nothing else, it 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 might have well, I guess this isn't true because that Bible's been around, and I mean, it's still not. People are going to see what they want to see. You've heard this talk forever, but for the for the for the reader who wants to see it the right way, if if our if if most of our Bibles had that, what it might at least clue us in to something different happening here. Still, an extended formula. So, I think that. <clears throat> Um, some of these other things are just not as huge on our radar, an issue that we would go. I can't believe Paul said that about speaking in tongues. I just don't know that that concerns all the folks. But obviously the whole issue of women and leadership role in the church and that kind of thing is a, is a, is a pretty big deal or lack thereof that we're trying to rectify. And understandings like this, again, digging a little deeper than just what we see. To reinforce what we already believe, digging in deeper helps with that. <laughs> um, I am um, my uh, one of my professors at Wake. I took a class on First Corinthians written by Charles Talbert, who was a renowned biblical scholar in the Baptist tradition, and he brought this up, and uh, you saw. Jaws literally drop from some of the my fellow male classmates. You could just see, you know, 18, 19, 20 years of indoctrination just kind of. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them didn't want to believe it because 18, 20, 19, 20 years of indoctrination is hard to snap in one class. But anyway, so anyway, uh, spiritual gifts. And, and 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 the fact that um, in the diversity of them that should not be something that separates us is a big part of this letter uh, they become divisive um, what are the spiritual gifts he talks about that chapter 12 verse 8 um, to one is given the spirit through through the spirit of utterance of wisdom, to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit, to another, faith by the same spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another, the workings of miracles, prophecy, discernments of spirit. So there's all these different kinds of spiritual gifts that we have, but they, are, they should not be a source of division and encampments, kind of like we found before. Um, so Paul makes the case very strongly for the church to recognize the value of all people working in the church. And of course, we have that wonderful body image. Um, 12, uh, twelve through twenty-seven. For just as a body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, the many are one. The uh, you know, if the foot were to say, "Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body," that would not make it any less a part of the body. I mean, we sort of know that. Um, Paul was very fond of describing the community of faith as a body. Um, and and again, we tend to think of when we call. The church that I call the church, the body of Christ, I think we all use it. This whole image, I mean, this is Paul. We have Paul to thank for this understanding of the faith community as a body. From that, he then goes into love. And the case that he's making, and the reason that 13 follows 12, or the reason that love follows the spiritual gifts conversation is that the thing that binds all these gifts together and gives equal value to all of them, even though they are different, that is love. Um, And that the spiritual gifts are useless without love at the center. So, it is perfectly fine to have 1 Corinthians 13 read at a wedding, but that is not what it was written for initially. Paul was not writing about the love for people at a wedding. Paul was writing about... How it unifies and brings together spiritual gifts and the life of the church and the building up of the body of Christ. So, just remember that. I think it's helpful. Um, get a little thing here that doesn't get a lot of press time in, in 1 Corinthians uh, because when you when you when you talk about the body of Christ and then you talk about love as this and love as that, that tends to uh, keep everyone's attention. But there's this little bit here near the end. Some Christians are denying the resurrection of the dead. Uh, the uh Paul defends this and and points out to christ's resurrection as a defense um that's an important part of paul's understanding and he goes on to describe what bodily resin will be like bodily resurrection will be like it'll be a changed body um i mean this was this was kind of a i mean almost a logistical sort of weird thing to be thinking about you know after so close to the time of jesus like what happens to our body when Christ comes again? What happens, and Paul talks about this in other letters, what happens to people who have already died? Do they miss out? Right? Because they are thinking, and I would totally understand this, that Christ's second coming was pretty imminent. Like, it's going to happen in their lifetime. Um, And so it's like, well, what happens to the people who have died between Jesus dying and when he comes again? So... It's those kinds of practical theological issues that Paul wrestles with and provides some, something for folks to hang their hat on when they're thinking about that. Okay? So, quick summary written by Paul. Around the middle of the first century deals with church divisions and pleads for unity, does not shy away from addressing specifically every issue. Um, famous sections, Churches of the Body of Christ, Love Chapter. And again, I would say the understanding that a, well, over a half dozen times in Paul, he uses a stoic-cynic formula that just does not have any visual cues that lets us know that he's doing that, unless you know he's doing that. When he appears to contradict himself, that's, that's a cue. All right. moving along to second corinthians so second corinthians was written a little after first corinthians um, whereas first corinthians we feel fairly confident scholars feel fairly confident is a unified letter from start to finish um second corinthians has some indications that it is fragments of multiple letters rather than just one single letter. And part of the reason that they think that is because in this one letter, Paul is writing about different situations that would have happened at different times in the life of this church. So at some point, and this happens, some point, somebody took these various fragments and kind of put them together into this one thing, and we call it 2 Corinthians. Um. Since Paul's last visit with them, other missionaries, he calls them super apostles, which is totally uh, sarcastic. He is throwing major shade at them, if you know what that expression means. He's kind of picking on them a little bit by calling them super apostles. I mean, you almost imagine him saying like that and waving his hands like that, like, oh, super apostles. But they come to Corinth and they try to sort of make some headway into Paul's influence in the life of the church. Paul did not like that. Um, and so he finds himself in a bit of a defensive position. This church that he had founded and had invested a lot of time and effort in, he feels like he's got to uh, speak his mind a little bit. So this letter um, has, uh, has a bit of an edgier tone to it. Um, he's hurt by the fact that this church would not turn on him, but... So so readily and eagerly um, ex- accept other leadership and other um, uh, truisms than his as legitimate. So he's hurt by that. When you invest a lot of time into people and they don't listen to you, then that hurts. Oh my gosh! So quick, outline of Paul: salutation, Thanksgiving, main part of the letter, beginning of verse twelve. Um, collection for the Jerusalem church. So he makes a pitch for money. It's one of the two instances where he does that most directly. Um, Paul responds and defends himself to challenges to his apostolic authority. That's a fancy way of saying people were challenging him on his uh, uh, position of influence in the life of this church. Apostolic authority. Peronesis and... Closing. Is this the same church in Corinth? Same church in Corinth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of the letters that Paul wrote, like Romans, is written to multiple churches in Rome because there were multiple churches. But then some of them, like Corinthians, are written to a particular congregation. All right, so strained relationship. Um, Look ahead to chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, So I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? So he makes reference to the fact that he had apparently gone to visit Corinth, and it had not gone well. That's uh, probably when he found out maybe about these super apostles and he called them out on it and they may push back. And so it was not a great visit. And so he's now writing after the fact, referring to that as a painful visit. Doesn't want that to happen again. And again, Paul feels the need to defend his ministry um, um, in light of some of the things that have happened there at the congregation. Um, and we get this. From this, we get this really beautiful passage. Uh, Flip ahead to um, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. Uh, And and then in verse 7, but we have this treasure in clay jars. Uh, A better translation of that might be earthen vessels. That's what the Greek literally said. Um, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. So um, we, 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 what Paul... Uh, the language that he's really using is is he's acknowledging the fragileness of, <laughs> of human nature and of their relationship in ways, and saying, look, we are we are these earthen vessels, but God, we are equipped to do God's work through these very fragile, imperfect kinds of vessels or resources, and um, we are we are beaten down, but we are not totally decimated. So. He's 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 trying to sort of give a little bit of sense of hope for um, for this relationship, you know, and saying if we just lean into God, then we can make it through this. Um, and and then uh, we get uh, this really pretty uh, part in uh, chapter five, verse sixteen and following. Uh, that a lot of theologians believe is the most apt summary of Paul's theology and purpose in ministry than anywhere else of anything he wrote. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making His appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin. Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God? Now, all of this does not sound uh, like new or shocking, but again, it's because we've, we've, we are vestiges of 2,000 years of this kind of thinking and uh, the, the huge influence that Paul had on our way of understanding God and Jesus and all the grace, forgiveness. Uh, redemption, reconciliation, all that. So, there's your snapshot of Paul right there in what five verses, four verses. Um, Paul asked for money. Um, I think I, I, think I preached on this not too long ago. <laughs> Uh, the Corinthians were taking issue um, with the fact that Paul was coming to them and asking for money for the Jerusalem church. Um, this, I, 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 I kind of relate this to when we go before session and say we need to be thinking about how much we're going to give to Presbytery. Because <laughs> there are some people that are like, what's Presbytery ever done for us? And the answer actually is a lot. But um, anyway, that's kind of the thing here. when you keep it in-house. So they took issue, they took umbrage with the fact that Paul was coming to them and asking for money for the Jerusalem church. Um, they saw that as kind of serving Paul's own personal agenda. So Paul wants to address this um, and, and really wants to understand. And again, this should sound familiar that when churches support other churches, they are all supporting the church, which is really what it's about. Um, but it is it is notable at the beginning of eight um that Paul leads into this conversation by telling them about this very small church in Macedonia who was who was their 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 giving was amazing, and not only was their giving amazing for a smaller church, but they were going through um what he calls a uh a severe ordeal of affliction. I forget that's what it is it's somewhere in there. Um, for during a severe ordeal of affliction, verse 2, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in the wealth of generosity. So um, so he, he lifts them up, which I kind of wonder how that made them feel. <laughs> um, but Paul was not bashful, right? Uh, so Paul wanted to say, look at this small church and look at what they've given. In the middle of a really, really tough time too. Hmm. Church in a major cosmopolitan city with a lot of resources. Hmm. Something to think about. Just saying. Um, And when I preached on it a couple weeks ago, I talked about this word charis and how it appears in many ways in this passage, translated in many ways. Uh, Verse 4, privilege. Um, Verse uh, 6, generous undertaking. Verse 7, generous undertaking verse 9 generous act verse 16 thanks and then verse 19 generous undertaking so again if we were reading the greek we would just see cars 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 it would be like okay we kind of get it paul that's okay we know what you're trying to tell us not as not as obvious in the english Um, so I don't know how that went. Um, I don't know how that went. We're ours is going pretty well. So there's that. That's good. We're getting close to our goal. Super close to our goal. Just I'll throw that out there. Um, Paul's response to challenges to his apostolic authority. Um, so if you, if you look ahead to 10 and I don't know about your Bible, but in mine, there is an actual line or space between the end of chapter nine and verse 10. Does anybody have that? That I don't have in between other chapters? Right. <clears throat> yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that is, that is perhaps an indication on the editor's part because it wouldn't have been a space like this if it won one whole book. That's probably an indication on the editor's part that this is a separate letter, <laughs> fragment of a letter, just that little space there. Um, but yeah, we, and, 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 also just, I, myself, Paul appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's almost like an introduction in you know, the middle of the letter. Um, but Paul, Paul really defends himself and there's a notable, a notable, uh, change of tone. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. When you, when you tell a person that you're humble. Um, and Paul speaks about, you know, I don't boast, but again, by, telling, by saying you don't boast, you're kind of boasting. Mm-hmm. So Paul, Paul flirts with that uh, a lot in this part. Um, and this is where we get in verse 11 and 5, we get this thing about the super apostles, um, which, which again, it's tongue in cheek, and you've got to read it. You, gotta, you almost have to read that with an eye roll. Like you got to envision him rolling his eyes when he says "super apostles." All right, um, it's hard to do when you're just reading it, but that that it was it was not meant as a flattering term. He does not think they're super. <laughs> um, verse six. What does he suggest these super apostles are? Let's back to verse five. I think that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. I may be untrained in speech, but not in knowledge. Certainly in every way and in all things we have made this evident to you. So what is he suggesting that these super apostles are? I can't it. Uh, chapter 11. Sorry, y'all. Chapter 11, verse 5. I'll, I'll start again. I think that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. I may be untrained in speech but not in knowledge certainly in every way and in all things we have made this evident to you. He's saying they don't know what they're talking about. Right. I think he's saying two things about them. I think first of all he's saying they are slick speakers. Like they are smooth talkers. Because he says what about himself? I may be untrained in speech. Mm-hmm. Alright. I'm not I'm not. I'm not the biggest schmoozer. All right, But then he says, but not in knowledge. Yeah, knowledge so what does that mean about him, about the super apostles? That they're, they don't have a lot. they're all talk and no substance. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, probably not surprisingly, Paul says, you've been duped by these people and you really should have listened to me. So... Um, uh, we don't know who these super apostles are. We don't know. Maybe they were pretty good, um, but the way that Paul tells it, it's like, yeah, they're just smart. They're just sweet talking to you. Um, stick with me. So, um, sixteen through twenty-one. Um, this is this is so it is so important to read this sarcastically. All right. So read this. I'm, I'm going to read this to you now like I am my 17-year-old or my almost 15-year-old um, when we're having a conversation about something they don't agree with Lori and me with, okay? So just I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to try and channel my inner teenage angst when I read this passage because this is, and again, when it's black and white in paper, it's really hard to sense that's what's happening, but you've got to read this section sarcastically. So here it is. I repeat. Let no one think that I am a fool. But if you do, then accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying in regard to this boastful confidence, I am saying not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to human standards, I will also boast. For you gladly put up with fools, being wise yourselves. For you put up with it when someone makes slaves of you or preys on you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or gives you a slap in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Eye roll. (laughs) Right? So um, he is referring himself as a fool, which is meant sarcastically. He does not think he's a fool. He thinks he's a pretty... Smart, intelligent dude that has got it all figured out or mostly figured out, um, but he's also suggesting that when it boils right down to it, he's just following what God wants him to do, and that's what we all are supposed to do and sometimes it may not seem like the most prudent decision or the most wise decision or the the flashiest decision but 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 uh, following God is what we want to try and do um, and then he gets into a credential comparison with these uh, other people to expose the, 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 the silliness of the Corinthians' tendency to do the same. So this latter part of the letter, the tone changes. He's very much in defensive mode. Um, he's calling out not just these super apostles, these imposters, but he's also calling out the Corinthians that they would allow themselves to be duped, so easily duped by these other people that are kind of saddling up to him. Okay? Probably fragments of multiple small letters, Second Corinthians is. It shows the fact that even a church that he founded and had a long relationship with and a lot of engagement with, that it wasn't all, uh, you know, nice, niceties. And what's the expression? It wasn't all sweetness. and, sweetness. and like, There you go. Sunshine That's right. That's right. Um, it was really written to defend himself and the work he was doing in ministry. And there's this really heavy sarcastic tone at the end that you've got to understand, otherwise it just seems kind of odd. So, um, and you know, the letter ends, um, verse chapter thirteen, verse eleven. Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order, listen to my appeal, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. So, after this kind of <clears throat> letter, it's like your friend, Paul. <laughs> okay. Any questions? All right. Good enough. Um, next week, I think we look at Romans. Maybe it's Romans next week. Galatians next week. OK. That's, a, that's another That's another heated one. Um, that's a good one, though. Um, Galatians and Romans. Oh, we'll do Romans too. Oh, super. OK. I know, right? Tell me about it. Tell me about it. You know, I I tell you, the harder one for me to spend one class on is Revelation. I want to spend, like, a whole month on Revelation. Um, I'm really looking forward to Revelation because it's not what we think it is. Anyway. Is it going to be just one class? I think it will be just one class. So we'll hit it hard. You could spread it out. Two classes. We might. I know. I can't push Christmas back another week, though. That's the only problem. (laughs) Details. Details. Anyway, blessings, y'all. Thank you much.